That's what I have seen in many countries, and I have actually been asked by people from several countries, why do Americans insist on being you know, African-American or Latin-American or Asian-American? And I have to tell them it's because in the United States we were not given the privilege of just being American. Um, we've always been divided out um, and made, and you know, and in some part of our history is especially for black people and other people, we were not considered to be a full American, um, a full human being, let alone a full American. K through 12 especially, we went through this period where they stopped teaching critical thinking and it became all about just memorize it, get it done to pass the test. I think that's one of the biggest disservices we could have ever done to, um, to our children. I know the history of this country is that we've never appreciated teachers enough. They've never been compensated enough for the work they do and yet none of us can be where we are without teachers. This week's guest is Ms. Barbara Marbury. During a conversation, we covered a wide range of topics, all things from her experience of growing up in Ohio to working as an international flight attendant exploring other countries, as well as her evolution, stepping into her current role in education, where she works to galvanize and empower students from marginalized communities. I've got a jam-packed episode for you this week, so sit tight, take a few breaths to ground yourself, and join us. We'll be right back just after this. You're listening to the Uniquely Eugene podcast, a show dedicated to highlighting the unique stories, ideas, and perspectives of the people living right here in our community of Eugene, Oregon. Here's your host, Anthony Che. My guest this week is an individual who has worked extensively to provide resources to and empower the youth in both our community and beyond. I'll allow her to introduce herself. Hello, my name is Barbara Marbury. I am the Bridge Programs Coordinator in the Center for Multicultural Academic Excellence, which is a department in the Division of Equity and Inclusion on the University of Oregon campus. Ms. Barbara grew up in a small town in Ohio, surrounded by a close-knit community of families. The oldest of six siblings, she stated that she learned to establish a role of responsibility at a young age. She explained to me that growing up in such circumstances came with both its benefits as well as its difficulties and inconveniences. Here's what she recalls. Oh, pretty, uh, I'm the oldest of six, and so that um, and that came with it, pluses and minuses. I, th I tell people um, I had a lot of responsibility, but it also made me a responsible person, and so I don't regret any of it. I, um, you know, I probably didn't do a lot of extracurricular activities until I was probably a junior or senior in high school uh, because of family responsibilities, but... Um, yeah, just, I'll say the advantage we had when I was young was that we really did have the concept of a village. I grew up in what would be considered the inner city, but we had um, neighborhoods where everyone looked out for each other. Um, I had no less than four or five mothers on my street. Um, 
and that was good and bad because they were always looking out for you. Um, but they're also looking out for you. Also <laughs> looking out for you. You couldn't get away with anything. Yeah. And um, but they introduced me to a lot of things too that we would not have probably been able to afford because my family didn't have money. My dad was disabled very early in life. He was only in his 30s. And so, but I had other families that introduced me to things like Girl Scouts and um, gave us etiquette lessons and taught us how to do things that were considered girl things back then, like embroidery and um, sewing and some artistic things. Um, but also probably got to take advantage of some um, other programs because of other families. What kind of programs do you mean? Um, well, just even just um, being involved in like some community organizations that I wouldn't have known about. Oh, cool. If they hadn't told me about it. And then through my school, I was introduced to um, programs that now would be like Upward Bound or TRIO. Um, so that's what... That's the start of my passion for what I do now because um, someone saw my potential when I was young um, and I would never have even considered myself someone who could go to college, not because I wasn't, didn't think I was smart enough. Um, I had you know, always had really high grades, but I knew we didn't have money. And so it was just not something I thought about and other people started um, sowing that idea you know, into me and um, supporting it and back then we had you know counselors we had more counselors and they had you know the ability to actually work with you sometimes one-on-one -on -one. and so I was very fortunate to be put in programs where I got to go visit colleges I got to um, have be mentored by college students um, and then I had teachers we had amazing teachers um, in my um, especially um, high school and unfortunately we lost a lot of those great teachers when they started busing and busing you know that whole experiment that uh -huh. to me is still a dismal failure but we had amazing teachers who made us believe in ourselves and it didn't matter if we had money and they and they expected a lot from us and so that um, that was always an example that I wanted to um, emulate when I work with young people you know, to instill the belief that you can do something and I expect you to do something and I don't expect you to um, do bad things. I expect you to reach your full potential. And so I was very fortunate with that. Miss Barbara had initially held aspirations of working in the airline industry as a youth. However, the confining restrictions around marriage and family deterred her away from the profession. Instead, she pivoted her focus towards education and began working towards becoming a language teacher. Her future at the moment didn't necessarily go according to plan, although eventually she got exactly to where she needed to be. I did when I was really young, and then I thought I couldn't do it because at the time, right before I started, you couldn't be married or have children. And so I thought, well, that lets that out. And so I was going to be a teacher. And um, that's actually was my... Um, Languages and education were my major in college, and so I thought I would teach Spanish. And I could not find a school that would allow me to teach Spanish the way it should be taught. So I decided to look at something else, and that's when the doors opened. Um, they changed the rules for the airline industry. And so I entered that, and then I just did 
private teaching and volunteer tutoring on the side. What was the airline that you worked with? Uh, what was called American Airlines. Uh, it's still called American Airlines, but it's a bit different from when I worked for them. I was able to qualify as a language speaker, and so I started out doing mostly Spanish routes. And then uh, when we started doing Brazil, I was able to do Brazil. So that was pretty much my route for probably the last 15 years of my career. I really loved it up until the last few years. Um, the industry has changed, and so the job started changing, but um, I always enjoyed the people. I enjoyed the um, people I got to also meet at different in different countries, but um, towards the end, we um, didn't have much of a layover. We didn't have much opportunity to stay and see people or do anything. It just became kind of like a nine to five. And so uh, it was time to leave that and do something else. While we were still on the topic, I wanted to ask Ms. Barbara about her favorite destination to travel to while working as a flight attendant. As a speaker of both Spanish and Portuguese, her answer was no surprise. Oh, that's really hard to say. I love all of South America, so Brazil was the place I went to the most. Um, I did... Um, yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really hard to say. I loved uh, Spain, was one of the places I did in Europe, but pretty much I enjoyed everywhere I went because um, I'm a foodie. And so if I can find good food and good people, I'm happy wherever I go. And um, I think I probably had the best time in um, the different countries in South America because um, people would assume that I was from there. It did help that I spoke the languages, so I was able to get around and make friends and always find good food. Having spent so much time in Brazil, I was curious what she was able to analyze about the people and the culture. Very diverse. Um, I would say I have no expert opinion on this, but I saw the most diversity in Brazil because there are so many people that actually, um, depending on after the war or after different things happened, that um, my, uh, immigrated to Brazil. And so you will see um, people who are, have very obviously have indigenous backgrounds. And then you might see a tall, blonde, blue-eyed, um, natural-born Brazilian who is of German descent. It was at this moment in our conversation that a distinct memory came to mind. It was an experience that I had in a high school class. The course was called Creators Conversations. It was a class designed specifically to create a space for students to educate themselves and discuss the topics of identity, specifically race and ethnicity, among other discourse communities. Among my classmates was a girl named Maria. She was an African-Brazilian foreign exchange student studying in Eugene. When we were holding our initial conversations about race, I remember that she was confused. She was insistent, stating that she was not black, but instead was simply Brazilian. And that's all. I found that fascinating, that her identity went beyond being black to being Brazilian. I described the scenario to Miss Barbara. She understood immediately and had this to say. And that's what I have seen in many countries. And I have actually been asked by people from several countries, why do Americans insist on being you know, African-American or Latin-American or Asian-American? And I have to tell them it's because in the United States, we were not given the privilege of just being American. Um, we've always been divided out um, and made, and you know, and in some 
part of our history is, especially for black people and other people, we were not considered to be a full American, um, a full human being, let alone a full American. And so uh, that is, um, you will find that to be quite common still today. It's like, if you come from another country, I'm just Brazilian, I'm just Colombian. Um, I'm just, I, when I was in college, I was an exchange student in Colombia, and I lived there for almost a year. And um, of course, that was back before, even in the U.S., we were having um, the rise in acceptance of identities and, you know, black pride and things like that. And so if I would tell people how I identify in, in uh, Colombia, they would say, um, no, you're not. You're not black. And I'm like, well, in the U.S., I am. Um, they would go, well, you're morena or something. But yeah. um, that, that concept was very foreign. And uh, I remember being in Barbados one time, meeting someone from um, Guyana who's asked me that question and he's like I just don't understand you know why Americans have to be um, divided out into into categories and um, even here at the U of O I had a student who was um, um, I believe he might have been from Saudi Arabia but I could be wrong can't remember but he asked that same question and we actually became um, um, uh, friends over the fact that we had a discussion about, you know, he needed to understand why that was here. And you will travel places and see that people can embrace their identity, but they still have their, their nationalism. They, they still get to, you know, be a citizen of the country that they're from. And, you know, they just identify as, you know, I'm Colombian. I, I'll never forget um, when I was studying in Colombia, um, one of my professors talked about coming to the United States for the first time in the early 60s. And she came into, it was a southern state, I can't remember which one, and she remembered seeing bathrooms that were marked colored in white. And she didn't know which one to go in. She never had seen that before. And so she went in the one that was marked white because that's the one that they had cleaned. And, but she said that just, that was her first introduction to the United States was a bathroom in the airport. That's a harsh way to be welcomed. Yeah. And, um, you know, so nowadays people would look at her and say, oh, she's Latina. But, you know, back then, because we had this strictly, you know, this black and white, she was considered white so she could go in that bathroom. After trying to process all the insightful anecdotes and wisdom that Miss Barbara had shared with me, I had one last burning question about working abroad. What was the craziest food that you'd eaten? Cow brains. I only did that once. There's not much I won't eat, but that wasn't my favorite, so I never returned to it. Gotcha. Yeah, they scrambled them with eggs or something. Where was that at? Colombia. Oh, Colombia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was... A delicacy, a fancy dinner, a nice brunch? It was just, um, I don't even remember, I think it was a brunch. And it was just something that the the family that I was with, that's something they liked. And um, like I said, I'll try anything once, but the texture didn't go over well for me. Um, what was it like? Um, I don't know if I, I kind of remember it as it's just being kind of mushy. Um, yeah, just viscous maybe. And it wasn't really pretty. <laughs> it's like I'm a visual person, so it really wasn't pretty. <laughs> and um, yeah, and the funniest thing that I ate that we actually used to eat as a kid in the States was um, cow tongue. And growing up, I thought that was like 
that was the nastiest thing in the world because it was like shoe leather. Um, but they made it there and I had no idea that's what I was eating and it was so tender and when they told me what it was in Spanish I thought I misunderstood the word and I went and looked it up and they're like okay I really was eating that but I didn't ask for it again but just because of the thought but it was really actually <laughs> very tender what dish was it cooked into it, they just cooked it plain just served so it like a piece of steak like a piece of steak yeah that's awesome Coming up after the break, Ms. Barber describes her experience with education on both sides, being a student herself, to working as an educator, to now being a student program coordinator. There's much more knowledge to absorb, so stick around. We'll be right back in just a moment. A central philosophy of this show is to use this podcast as a platform to connect and bring together individuals in our community. If you have community events or promotions you feel passionate to share, you can send an email to anthony at uniquelystudios.com. That's A-N-T-H-E-N-Y at uniquelystudios.com. I'll do my very best to deliver your message to the community as well as I can. Now, back to the show. Before the break, Ms. Barbara described her adventures and experiences abroad. While her time was well enjoyed, after she retired her career, she was drawn back to education after her husband accepted a job opportunity at the University of Oregon. In this portion of our conversation, Ms. Barbara and I go in-depth into her experiences in education to evolving into her current role at U of O. Here she is describing her best teacher growing up. Wow, I had, I had a lot of teachers that really made a difference in my life. The very first one that I remember from the earliest would probably be my fourth grade teacher, Miss Moss. And she was, um, she was an older teacher by the time she was teaching my class. But she was the first one who told us that you could be great. Again, I remind you, we're in inner city schools where, you know, you may or may not, today, may not hear these things. But she taught us a love for books. She brought her own books into the classroom and let us borrow them. She taught us that it didn't matter if you were poor, you could still carry yourself well and you come to school um, you know, clean and if you didn't have the facilities at home, she would help you do that in school. And so she was the first one who really introduced me to the love of reading. Um, I would say another teacher was my algebra teacher and actually she was a thorn in my side because I hated algebra, but she expected that we could do it. And she was in my junior high. I thought I got away from her in high school and then she followed me to high school. Wow. But she set the bar. Um, and probably the one who influenced my choice in majors was my high school Spanish teacher. Um, she was a young teacher, total opposite of my fourth grade teacher, very young, just a recent college graduate herself. And um, she just came in. She wasn't afraid to be in an inner city school. She came in with um, expectations and also listened to us and supported us. And I didn't have a lot of confidence. And she saw um, that I had the ability to master this language. And so she pushed me harder than I had ever been pushed. And I had studied Spanish since I was in like sixth grade. But she was the one who really pushed me to um, really believe that I could do well in it and 
enough so that I majored in it. A particular question that I've long been fascinated by is what is the point of equilibrium for pushing students to reach their full potential? How can you motivate them to become the best that they can possibly be without discouraging them from it due to the task seeming so daunting? I asked Ms. Barber her thoughts on the matter, and I enjoyed hearing her philosophy around it. Yeah, I will say that um, my, uh, my algebra teacher's methods probably would be frowned upon today because um, she would intimidate you, and she would call you out, and she would um, you know, force you to get up and, and do something because she believed you could. Um, nowadays, that probably would be really frowned upon, um, you know, calling someone out or um, not making fun of, but she would, she would call you out and um, make you the center of attention. Um, I do think it's, it is a harder balance these days, and, and I even in the work that I do, um, it's, it's a hard balance trying to encourage someone um, and trying to make sure that they are living up to their potential. And so it's like the need to show them that you believe in them, that you can, that they can do it um, without making them feel like um, they're failing you if they don't. I don't ever want someone to do something because I want them to do it. I want them to believe that they can do it. And, and I will sometimes, you know, call out folks if I think they're just not trying to live up to their potential. Uh, I have done that, but um, but there's also that balance of the relationship that you have. Like I'm older, um, I think um, you know students, especially high school students, but even college students, you know, they'll relate to me differently than say they would one of my younger colleagues, um, because you know they see me coming from I don't know probably a more motherly um, position. Uh, as opposed to someone who's maybe only, you know, 30 or whatever, and they see more closer to, like, being a peer. Uh-huh. Or not a peer, but, you know, closer in age. Yeah. And maybe, like, okay, you haven't earned the right yet to say anything. Um, so, but there, I'm always, always trying to be um, aware of that and... I'm sure I don't always succeed in doing it right, but I try to let people know that I'm coming from a place of love and and caring. And so if I say something that may sound a little harsh, it's only because I really care about you. And um, I want, especially the students that I work with, I want them to seek opportunities that other people take for granted. Um, Other people, you know, that have um, more of a privileged position don't have any trouble going out and asking for help or seeking resources um, and yeah I just want them to get comfortable with doing that. Having been around education for so long both as a tutor and now as an educator with a program I wanted to know Miss Barber's perspective when it came to the evolution of education. She described some triumphs for the field as well as a few downfalls. Well you know, we went through a period, I, I think we're finally coming out of it, but in like um, K through 12 especially, we went through this period where they stopped teaching critical thinking and it became all about just memorize it, get it done to pass the test. I think that's one of the bis- 
biggest disservices we could have ever done um, to our children. Um, and then the fact that you base people's pay and the funding they receive for their schools on the test scores, which in turn makes those leaders, those administrators, just really focused on passing those tests, having students who pass those tests, and it really doesn't matter how much did they learn. Um, I've worked with a lot of young people who started out loving school, loving to read, loving to write, and they just had that passion killed because now I'm just reading to pass the test or I'm just, you know, writing what they want me to write. Um, I was, I guess, fortunate and challenged that the college that I went to um, was a school that focused heavily on writing. We wrote papers for everything, even math classes. But I was fortunate enough that I had a good background in writing. Um, I work with students nowadays who come to school or this high school students that I work with were really having to focus on that because they just don't have those skills and they're not being taught. Um, I So that's one of the things I'm passionate about is teaching, um, not teaching, but supporting students and finding their voice, uh, learning how to express it either through writing or verbally, um, how you, how words can um, empower them, but then how also do you get heard? Um, so how do you um, learn to express yourself in a way that makes people listen to you? Um, because sometimes it's not about just yelling and forcing your opinion on others. It's like um, helping them hear, hear you, hear what you're saying. And especially for young people who don't have the power of the vote, um, how can they use their words? How can they use their writing skills? Yeah, what can they do to be heard? And um, I always kind of like it a little bit. I tell, tell students that it's kind of like being married. You have to um, convince your spouse sometimes, you know, you, you have to do things in a way that like convinces them that it was their idea all along. You know, what you really want to happen, um, you figure out um, how you convince them, yes, this is a good idea, and yes, and they're happy they thought of it. <laughs> and so, because, you know, you don't, you don't have a long marriage if you're constantly arguing. Definitely. So. Yeah, I like that metaphor. <laughs> uh. But, um, so I think that's, for me, that was probably the, the biggest change that I saw. I know that there are states and districts now that are trying to get back into the, the critical thinking piece, um, but it takes work because, um, especially like where I came from, an example is in Virginia. They had had an entire um, cycle of students who had just been studying to pass a test. And then they switched to this um, exam that was, so you could have gotten you know, enough credits and grades to pass, um, graduate from high school, but then they had a state exam. And you had to pass that state exam to actually get your diploma. And they switched to the exam to one that required critical thinking something these students hadn't been asked to do for the last four to six years. And so you had students who actually passed all of their classes, but they didn't get their diploma huh. because they couldn't pass that state exam. And, then the and so there, there were 
had a few, you know, parents who came out against that. I we moved before I found out what the outcome was, but um, yeah, for me that was one of the um, I think the most serious thing that happened. But then also that they took so many things because of budget cuts and other things, took so many things out of schools. Um, I still think it's very odd that many schools, I don't even know about Oregon, they don't teach um, cursive writing anymore. And so I'm thinking, okay, we're going to have a whole generation that this is going to, or pretty soon it's going to be like, that's um, hieroglyphics. Yeah, they're ancient. I don't know what that is. It's like hieroglyphics. Uh, my goddaughter used to, um, her mother taught her to write in cursive, but her classmates hadn't been taught. And so when she didn't want someone copying off her paper, she would write in cursive. Uh -huh. And it just was mind-boggling to me that the students couldn't read it. Just a change in letters, but they yeah. couldn't read it. Another hard-hitting point that Miss Barbara had made during our conversation was an incredibly valid point she made about the treatment of teachers in the United States. Yeah, and it's always been, you know... I don't know about other countries, but I know the history of this country is that we've never appreciated teachers enough. They've never been compensated enough for the work they do, and yet none of us can be where we are without teachers. Um, so that, um, I don't know, I don't know where and when that's going to change. There may be some places uh, in the country, in the world, where they are, um, you know, compensated for their worth and the work that they do. Um, I think, um, that would go a long way in really uh, encouraging good people, people who would be great teachers and have a passion for teaching to enter the field. Because I know right now there's people that, uh, I know personally people that would be amazing teachers, they were amazing teachers, but because of the way the systems are um, and the things that were, um, the things they weren't allowed to do to teach, um, they've gone into other areas. I mean, my high school Spanish teacher actually left and went into law for a while and then moved to another state and then went back to teaching because she just missed it so much. But there's that constant burnout, um, especially when you know um, the best way to teach something and how to reach people and they're telling you, no, just, just do the book. And people who do it and stay in it, they do it for one reason. They do it because they're passionate about students. Even, even a place like, you know, um, you know, even on university campuses, most um, most faculty will say that they're in it because they want to share their knowledge with students. Um, but especially in K through 12, you, they are in it because if they stay in it, it's because they love students, they love teaching, they love what they're doing. They're definitely not staying in it for the money or the glory. And so I think, uh, you know, there'll be a wake up call one day when we start, when they start realizing that we are falling behind uh, when we start really falling behind other countries um, as far as educating our young people. Yeah. So I hope it doesn't, I hope the, the students aren't the ones who have to continue to pay the price before that happens, you know, before that realization comes about. In the final portion of my conversation with Ms. Barbara, we wrap up by talking about her current role in our community at U of O, as well as her aspirations for the future. It was really meaningful to hear her talk about the work she does because personally, I've benefited from similar experiences as a student of color. I hope you give her an opportunity to hear about just a bit longer. We'll be right back just after this.
Coming up next week on the Unique Legion podcast, I speak with local writer and comedian Eric Sparks. Eric enlightened me on an unfamiliar topic through sharing his experiences. He told me his story of battling drug addiction. In a weird way, you have to learn how to be an addict before you can stop being one. Spending time working and living in South America. We found Jaguar prints. Yeah. We were with, with this British guy, and he was like, we should try to see the Jaguar, and Dick was like, no, we should not. <laughs> as well as giving insight into his writing, which I found incredibly impressive due to the strong voice he's been able to establish in both his anecdotes and comedy bits. Join us next Monday for an eye-opening and truly interesting interview with Eric Sparks on the Uniquely Gene Podcast. The program that I've been mentioning repeatedly throughout the episode is U of O's Oregon Young Scholars Program. Miss Barbara has been putting together an exceptional experience for students around Oregon to come here during their summers for years. Providing valuable insight in college preparatory skills, fostering social connections among students from different backgrounds, as well as relaying essential life knowledge such as financial wellness. She is very passionate about her work, and frankly, so am I. So the Oregon Young Scholars Program was started in 2005, and it uh, takes uh, students as they're leaving, uh, graduating from eighth grade, and they come in as rising freshmen in high school, and the goal is that they stay in the program um, through their senior year. It is a program that brings them to campus in the summer for um, normally nine days now. Uh, this summer was shortened by a couple of days. And, um, but we also work with them throughout the school year, so um, doing monthly check-ins, we offer tutoring, just checking in on them, seeing how they're doing in school, offering support as they need it to, you know, to the students and their families. Um, we do consider it to be a college prep program. Uh, we have enjoyed, a, I think our last number was a 99% college matriculation rate. Wow. And, um, but the greatest part of the program is that these students come together and they support each other. Um, you know, our goal is not only uh, academic success, but social growth, you know, personal growth, um, just teaching them to value themselves, to respect others, and to seek, uh, teach them how to seek resources, uh, teach them about um, resources that exist. Um, it's, it's a challenge because the students come from many different school districts. Currently our students come from Eugene, Springfield, Portland, Roseburg, Wilsonville, and now we have a component that comes from LA, and that's through a partnership that was created um, uh, through advancement. But because they're in different grades and they're in different school districts, you can't assume that um, all seniors have the same information. All freshmen have gotten, well, the freshmen haven't gotten any information because they're just starting. But so it makes the uh, programming a bit challenging, but we have had. Um, uh, every year we normally have different uh, cohorts that students can choose from and so they're very rigorous very challenging courses and what I have loved seeing especially for the first-year students who haven't even stepped foot in high school yet they rise to the challenge every time and we've had things like molecular biology and neuroscience and physics and archaeology and um, what are some of the other things we had a theater cohort that um, taught communication skills uh, through theater techniques and so even if they don't even know what some of the subjects are they rise to the challenge and they work together and um, this year we because we were given um, the green light to host this program so late 
um, we didn't have the regular academic cohorts and I thought the students would be relieved and actually they told me they were disappointed uh, that they didn't get to participate in those particular academic cohorts this year but we had other uh, cohorts on like things uh, several sessions through the week on financial wellness and leadership and imposter syndrome and just um, um, college um, readiness I think it's I think it's incredible that you're doing that you're doing that work and that you're putting together that program especially for the populations that you're accessing I think things like the things that you described like imposter syndrome learning how to step into one's own identity learning how to feel empowered in one's own identity and as well as financial wellness is something that I'm also very passionate about it's like there's no class in high school that's going to teach you any of that really unless unless you have some kind of side club that not everyone's going to have access to it's not a standard for students uh, like students of color specifically um so I think that that's really great that you're putting together that program and doing that kind of work and I hope that you continue that for a very long time and continue to grow the program. Well, thank you. I'm very fortunate to have um, you know, campus partners and others, community partners who believe in this work. And um, I've been very fortunate in, in the time that I've been here to create some great relationships. And, um, you know, people in the beginning would tell me, oh, you're not going to be able to work with this group or that group. And I went, I don't know why not. And when people understand that um, you're here for one thing, and that's helping the students succeed and be better. I have never had anyone turn me down um, when I ask for you know, a collaboration or some support because this is what people want to do and they see the value. Yeah, and I, I, I think it's, um, I, I've also been able to witness the, um, students who, um, you know, BIPOC students interacting with people who don't identify as they do um, yes, they're all people of color, but they don't normally interact every day on a regular basis. And, you know, offering that opportunity to learn about each other and each other's cultures and just learn about each other as individuals. And it's so funny because I, I love watching in the beginning when people are, um, we intentionally match people up sometimes when they're with the roommates that, that, you know, we intentionally match up people who don't identify as the same. And they start out like, uh, not terrified, but, you know, the second day they still don't know anything about their roommate and by the end of the week they're crying and don't want to leave each other. So I think it's just a pure example of how if you um, you can learn about people on an individual level and see what you have in common versus what you don't have in common and that you're all reaching for the same goal. Um, you know, it, we can learn a lot from watching um, how young people react. Definitely. My final question for Ms. Barbara was in regards to her aspirations for the future, both for herself and for her program. For my program, it's just, I think, uh, to make it um, available to more, you know, find the, find the resources to grow it and make it available to more students than we currently serve. And uh, my own personal aspirations uh, after I achieve what I hope to achieve with this program is um, find a place with warm blue water and retire there. All right. That's all for this week. Thank you, Miss Barbara Marbury, for coming on the show and sharing her wisdom as well as experience. If you'd like more information from the episode today, check the show notes below. 
I want to say thank you for all the support that's been poured out for the first episode and the constructive feedback that I've been given. It's been incredibly encouraging, and I'm so glad we're off to a great start. My hope is to continue improving the show increasingly as we continue production. The best way you can support our show is to share it with your friends and family. A single share goes such a long way. If you'd like to stay up to date with current episodes and projects, you can follow our show on all major social platforms at Uniquely Eugene. I'll be back next week with another brand new episode. Until then, I wish you all the best and thank you for tuning in to the Uniquely Eugene podcast.